Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the iconic Florida song, Orange Blossom Special. Everybody plays it a little bit differently, so it's hard to say what my favorite version of it is because everybody puts their own stamp on it when they play it. We'll discuss the 19th century court-martial of William King after the First Seminole War. He was brought up on a number of of court-martial charges. I mean, speaking in in terms of dozens of charges, uh, ranging from misuse of public funds to the unlawful use of corporal punishment. And we'll talk about William King's legacy in the Second Seminole War. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's a 1982 recording of legendary Florida musicians Gamble Rogers and Will McLean performing the song Orange Blossom Special at the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs. From 1925 through 1953, the luxury passenger train called the Orange Blossom Special traveled from Penn Station in New York City to Miami. Other Florida stops included Jacksonville, West Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood, and Miami before the train returned north via Winter Haven, Bradenton, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Orlando, Gainesville, and Tallahassee. The Orange Blossom Special came to Florida between mid-December and mid-April. Even more famous than this luxurious train and its wealthy passengers is the song Orange Blossom Special. Well, as the story goes, um, both Chubby Wise and Irvin Rouse uh, visited the Orange Blossom Special when it passed through Jacksonville on an exhibition tour in 1938. Randy Knowles is author of the book Fiddler's Curse, The Untold Story of Irvin T. Rouse, Chubby Wise, Johnny Cash, and the Orange Blossom Special. It's hard to imagine now, but this was just a huge deal. Um, This train had um, brand new um, diesel electric locomotives and Pullman cars, and it was on an exhibition tour between Washington and Miami, and it stopped in every city of any size uh, along the way for people to look at it. And now we think, well, gee, it was just a train, but at the time it was like the space shuttle coming through town. Um, In Jacksonville, schools closed. Um, They had a turnout of about 30,000 people during the two days. The train was parked there just to come and look at it. They were just awestruck by it because of its design and its technology and everything it represented. And uh, Chubby and Irvin were not immune to that. And uh, they visited the train when it came through on the exhibition tour and, and uh, as the story goes, were inspired to write the song. 
Even though only Irvin T. Rouse's name appears on the copyright for the music of Orange Blossom Special, the traditional story that Chubby Wise co-wrote the song with Rouse has gained widespread acceptance. Before his death in 1996, Chubby Wise repeated his claims of co-writing Orange Blossom Special. I went to Jacksonville, and uh, Irvin Rouse and myself wrote the Orange Blossom Special in 1939. Give us all the history or detail you can remember about helping Irvin Rouse right there. All right, Irvin was a, a good friend of mine, and he came to Jacksonville. And uh, they had really, the Orange Blossom Special was one of the most, I guess the first, you might say, streamlined train that the Seaboard ever had. And they had it in Jacksonville at the Union Station there for people to kind of go through and look at, see, and admire the new streamlined pretty train, the Orange Blossom Special. So Irvin and I ran out of something to do, and about 2 o'clock in the morning we went through that train, me and Irvin Rouse. So he went home with me, and that time I lived on 809 East Adams Street, I'll never forget it. In Jacksonville? In Jacksonville. Irvin went home with me and eat breakfast, so about 4 o'clock in the morning he and I sat on the side of my bed and took our fiddle out and said, let's write, he called everybody Doc, he said, Doc, let's write one call of the Orange Blossom Special. I said, all right, Irving, we'll just do it. And we got our two fiddles out on the side of the bed. Now, listen to this. And in about 45 minutes, we had just about written the complete melody of the Orange Blossom Special. Now, I don't remember where I wrote the whistle part or the fiddling part. It's been long. I haven't got that good a memory. But I know we did almost completely well. When he started to leave his chubby, the doctor said, let's go down and get that thing copyrighted. He said that we might have a good fiddle tune there. And I said, Irvin, I don't have any time to fool with no fiddle tune, buddy. I've got to check on my cab. I went to work at 5 o'clock in the morning then, driving a 10 cent taxi cab. I told you you could go for a dime then, see. Yeah. I said, I've, that's when my daughter was, a, you might say, a crawling baby. I said, I've got to go to work, check on my cab, and try to make some, some food for my family here. I ain't got time to fool no fiddle tune. I said, if you can do anything with it, it's all yours. I remember them very words, if it was yesterday. And he did something with it. Granny okay. went and, and had it... Uh, Put in his name, of course, Irvin T. Rouse. And he and Gordy, I had nothing to do with the words. He and, he and his brother Gordon wrote the words on it. And looking on it coming down the railroad track. And he went and had it copyrighted. And I'm so grateful it didn't hurt my statue none at all as a fiddle player. I gave him my half of it. And if he was alive, he'd tell you the same thing. Here's Chubby's own, the Orange Blossom Special by the man that wrote it.
Chubby Wise is considered one of the greatest fiddlers in country music. At age 15, Wise started playing in Jacksonville nightclubs and joined the Jubilee Hillbillies in 1938. In 1942, he started playing at the Grand Ole Opry with Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys and recorded with many other artists over the years. In 1984, he moved back to Florida, recording and performing infrequently. Irvin T. Rouse lived from 1917 to 1981 and is also considered to be a great fiddle player. Irvin worked with his brother Gordon, traveling from Florida to New York in the 1930s to record and perform. Irvin suffered from mental illness and alcoholism, spending the last decades of his life playing in remote clubs near the Everglades for tips. Irvin's brother Gordon Rouse always maintained that Chubby Wise did not co-write the Orange Blossom special. The truth is what hurts. Yeah. Well, what, uh, what do you think about this gentleman, Mr. Chubby Wise, uh, telling that he was a co-writer of the Orange Blossom special? Is there anything <clears throat> to that? Well, Chubby Wise never heard the Orange Blossom special until we, we, we after we had wrote it. There you go. And as far as uh, Chubby's concerned, he met us before we wrote the Orange Blossom special. But we little later on is when we really wrote the Orange Blossom special. And we did, we wrote it starting at Miami, 21st Street and 7th Avenue in Miami, when we seen it Christian. That's, that's when we started to read it, right, right that, that day that it was Christian. But he's telling that he uh, <coughs> helped to write that thing in a hotel room or in his apartment one night. And as you say, there's nothing to that, is that right? Oh, well, <laughs> it's, it's very, very easily to say you done something sure. that you didn't do. Right. And uh, you tell people you did it, and and the people don't know whether you, whether you did it or don't. Right. Not. That's for sure. And he's telling. And uh, so uh, he just told. Uh, Any time he said anything about it, he had anything to do with writing it, all on crew. He never even heard it until it was already on the on the thing and being on the market and everything. Right. And uh, and then he later on through the years he. He made out like just because he met us early in Jacksonville that he <laughs> helped write, but he did not. I'm on Inezuzu, yes, sir. Bye bye, you only thing. First thing going south. During his research for the book The Fiddler's Curse, Randy Knowles concluded that the traditional belief that Chubby Wise co-wrote the Orange Blossom special with Irvin T. Rouse is false. Well, the accepted story was uh, that it was written, as I said, in Jacksonville by Chubby Wise and Irvin Rouse after they toured the Orange Blossom special on its exhibition tour. Uh, this was the story that Chubby told repeatedly over the years, and it's the story that made it into uh, the history books and, and uh, that Chubby propagated. Um, it turns out not to have been true because my research indicated that the, the song had been written and copyrighted prior to the exhibition tour, so it couldn't possibly have happened the way Chubby described. But um, 
Irvin was not a person. He was he was um, he was had some serious mental problems. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic when he was young. Uh, he had very few social skills, very little knowledge of copyrights and business, and and uh, he really never, in his lifetime, stood up for himself and and said, you know, none of this is true. I I found out that it wasn't strictly accurate. At least I got a hint that it wasn't when I was doing a story for Jacksonville Magazine on songs that have a relationship to Jacksonville, Florida. And Jacksonville has a, a pretty rich musical heritage. And Orange Blossom Special, of course, is one that was reputed to have been written in Jacksonville. And I tracked down uh, Irvin's widow and reached her on the telephone and, and told her I was doing the story and how I understood that her husband and Chubby Wise had written this song in 1938. And she cut me off right there and said, I'm so tired of hearing that. I've heard that for 60 years. It's not true. Chubby Wise had absolutely nothing to do with, with writing that song. It just makes me so mad that people continue to think that. And and uh, she just really got agitated. And, and uh, then as I talked to her more and found out about Irvin's life, and, and uh, uh, it, it occurred to me that really the interesting story was not so much who really wrote the song. It was really more about Irvin and Chubby themselves and their lives because they were just uh, – very tragic figures, both of them, and uh, brilliant in their own way, but but deeply flawed. And if you were a writer of fiction, you couldn't have made up any more oddball characters than, than Irvin and Chubby. So we were able to dispense with the who wrote the song pretty fast because it was easy to see just by looking at the copyright uh, on the original sheet music, which I did when I went to the um, copyright office in Washington, D.C., and they looked it up for me. Uh, it was easy to see that Chubby's story didn't hold up. Um, what Chubby did do was was popularize the song in the early days because he was, um, as you know, the probably the greatest, arguably the greatest bluegrass fiddler of all time and, and was maybe Bill Monroe's best bluegrass fiddler. And Bill Monroe was the originator of bluegrass music pretty much. And uh, Chubby played the song all over the world with Bill Monroe and, and recorded it. And, and it was eventually, of course, picked up by other mainstream artists. And uh, so you could certainly say Chubby... Uh, Chubby got the song out into the mainstream, but he unquestionably, in, in my view, did not help write it. Audiences continue to love the song Orange Blossom Special. Playing this virtuosic piece almost guarantees a standing ovation from bluegrass and country music fans. Even rock bands and symphony orchestras are among the amazingly diverse groups who have recorded and performed this song. I enjoy Johnny Cash's version, which is kind of ironic because it's a fiddle tune, but there is not a fiddle to be heard in that song. It's a saxophone and a harmonica. Um, I've also heard it played, uh, as I said, by symphony orchestras. Those are always fun to hear. Um, uh, the Grateful Dead have recorded it. Uh, everybody plays it a little bit differently, so it's hard to say what my favorite version of it is because everybody puts their own stamp on it when they play it. Randy Knowles is author of the book Fiddler's Curse, the untold story of Irvin T. Rouse, Chubby Wise, Johnny Cash, and the Orange Blossom Special. This is The String Cheese Incident playing the iconic song.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books about Florida history and culture, read our Florida Frontiers blog, and much more. While you're there, you can join the Florida Historical Society to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. William King's name is associated with both the first and second Seminole Indian Wars. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the first Seminole War began in 1818 when Andrew Jackson decided to invade Spanish-controlled Florida. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, going back to 1783, when the Spanish first took over, uh, or regained control, rather, of the Floridas, beginning what we call the Second Spanish Period, we had a series of tensions between this newly created uh, American uh, government and the colonial Spanish government in Florida. Now, Pensacola was the largest uh, populated area in West Florida and really was the central, uh, where the central government of West Florida was located. Um, but between 1783 and 1821, when Florida became a U.S. territory, there was a series of uh, altercations between uh, Seminole Indians who were living in Spanish-held West Florida and also American uh, frontiersmen who were kind of moving into the borderlands regions and putting a lot of pressure onto to the Spanish government. Uh, so there were a series of altercations that occurred between uh, the native peoples living in West Florida uh, and the uh, American uh, colonists who were sort of moving in. And it all kind of came to a head after the War of 1812 uh, in 1818. And Andrew Jackson, really on his own accord, without any kind of uh, official authorization from the U.S. government, invaded a sovereign country uh, into West Florida and actually occupied the city of Pensacola. That began in May of, of 1818, and they occupied the town until about February of, uh, of 1819, when uh, President Monroe decided that it was probably a better idea uh, in terms of their treaty negotiations. We're talking about the Adams-Onis Treaty that ultimately led to the acquisition of Florida. It would probably be better if the uh, U.S. military was not occupying a sovereign city within a a sovereign-held colony. So uh, so they left in February of 1819. Now, Andrew Jackson went on to become president of the United States, but his invasion of Florida was not without consequences for those who served under him. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Andrew Jackson was is famous for what we call the crony uh, type of, of politics or cronyism. Uh, he liked to surround himself with a lot of his friends. So he appointed a lot of military officers who generally were, were yes men. They went along with whatever his plans were. And one of those young officers was a man named uh, William King. Uh, by this time in 1818, he's uh, reached the rank of colonel. Uh, William King is a, a native of Delaware. Uh, he joined the army um, right around 1803, uh, served with Jackson during the War of 1812, uh, and in 1813, he became the commanding general of the uh, 4th Infantry Regiment, which uh, was heavily involved in the Creek Wars and then later uh, this invasion into West Florida. When they came into uh, West Florida, Jackson decided to appoint Colonel William King as the governor of West Florida. So not only was he the governing official within Pensacola, but uh, under King's command, he felt that he controlled all of West Florida and exerted that influence. Um, the problem was he wasn't a great commander. Uh, and uh, shortly after, in 1819, he was brought up on a number of, of court martial 
charges. I'm, I'm, I mean, speaking in, in terms of dozens of charges, uh, ranging from misuse of public funds to the unlawful use of corporal punishment. Uh, there are a number of privates who deserted from their posts. Uh, oftentimes, they would uh, engage in heavy drinking and would just kind of wander off into the wilds of West Florida. And uh, within a few days, Colonel King would uh, send out a detachment. And under U.S. law, they were supposed to be brought back and uh, given a proper trial. Uh, but uh, Colonel King decided to scratch that order uh, and uh, ordered these these young privates killed on the spot, uh, many of whom in, in very grotesque ways. There's a, an instance here uh, that we're looking at this 1820 document that was submitted to the U.S. House of Representatives as part of his court-martial proceedings. We have a young private who was bound by his hands and feet and then drowned in Pensacola Bay, uh, again, without any trial. We have a number of other uh, young privates who were uh, shot dead on site, uh, w- again, without any trial. So um, it really was a, a very serious uh, incident, and uh, Colonel King was brought uh, originally to Mobile, but there was a uh, yellow fever outbreak, so they moved the trial to Montpelier in, in Virginia, uh, and the uh, trial commenced in late 1819, uh, and a sentence was uh, was handed down in 1820. Well, what ultimately happened to Colonel King? Well, uh, King was was found guilty on uh, a number of charges, uh, some of of which were dismissed, and uh, that probably had to do with his uh, political connections, again, with Jackson and some other powerful figures. Um, But he was found guilty of a number of charges of unbecoming of an officer, misuse of public funds, uh, and he was stripped of his command, so he was kicked out of the Army. So he had been uh, an officer in the Army, again, since 1803. So here he's in 1821, publicly embarrassed, stripped of his command, uh, and was uh, essentially sent out on his own. Now, he died shortly after in 1826, but in 1827, when the U.S. government decided to set up a frontier fort in uh, what was now the newly acquired Florida territory, U.S. territory of Florida, uh, they named it in his honor, Fort King, which is uh, was located near present-day Ocala. Interesting story. Thanks, Ben. Sure, absolutely. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Even after William King was court-martialed on multiple counts, when King died in 1826, Andrew Jackson chose to name a fort after him. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at Fort King in the Second Seminole War. In your mind's eye, you look at Central Florida, which is uh, a a perfect place for agriculture and and cattle raising, and it's the perfect pioneer uh, paradise, literally, in the southeast. And some of those, too, use this area to a great extent. And it's, uh, the issue is about land and, um, and who's going to eventually own it. That was Gary Ellis. He spoke to me about the causes of the Second Seminole War. He's an archaeologist that heads up an organization known as the Gulf Archaeology Research Institute. The Research Institute examines locations throughout Florida that are sites for prehistoric activity with an emphasis on coastal populations, That examines pioneer settlements, Seminole Wars, and Civil War sites. Here, he tells me how Fort King, in what is today Marion County, got started, and the events that brought the Second Seminole War there. Fort King was built in 1827 uh, as the uh, conditions and tensions mounted in Florida on the frontier. 
part of that drive was to protect the pioneers then moving into the new Florida Territory and the, uh, uh, also to dampen down potentially uh, depredations by the resident uh, Indians, the Seminoles, of, of which there's several different components and groups located throughout the state, and essentially uh, to eventually facilitate the government's program of uh, not so nicely easing the Seminole to uh, the Western territories and relocating them. Uh, as events turned out, it was rather critical to the mounting tensions, and I think everyone knows that the uh, Osceola had a bad turn of events at Fort King, which led to uh, his famous attack and, some, and revenge on the Indian agent, Wiley Thompson, in December of 1835. Thereafter, Fort King becomes the seat of the war. Throughout the war, there were multiple forts built. As the attacks take place there and at Micanopy and, and, of course, the Dade Massacre, tensions go beyond a certain uh, threshold and war is uh, game on. Uh, Fort King becomes the seat of the, uh, of the war. So it's actively used and garrisoned, and the original fort built in 1827 was burned when it was temporarily abandoned. Uh, When it was rebuilt on a slightly different plan, uh, um, what you have then is in one location at the top of a hill on the east uh, side of Ocala, a a well-developed site uh, that has uh, multiple archaeological signatures within which uh, is the range of behaviors that represents military and some territorial activity and Native American activity uh, before the Second Seminole War, through the Second Seminole War, and thence to its uh, uh, eventual dismantlement in about 1843. Since Gary Ellis was one of the archaeologists involved with the site, he tells me the things he found there and why it was significant. Part of the extensive artifact inventory, you're going to have the, the everyday uh, material culture of bottle glass and other glassware, ceramics, coinage, uh, nails, which are extremely important to uh, historic archaeology, and accoutrements, pipage, uh, medallions, and buttons, and finally shot and uh, materials related to defensive and offensive warfare is uh, not very large, just over a couple of acres in its entire extent. But the core area of the site has been investigated several times. I participated in the latter two that defined the nature and extent of the fort and eventually led to its uh, nomination as a National Historic Landmark. So it, it has met the criteria of that level of significance. I interviewed Gary Ellis and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. You can find it on iTunes. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.